1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. All right, Higher Side Chatters, a new year, a new take on the THC introduction. Here we have a throwback to the intro that started it all. A little less aggressive, maybe a bit easier on the ears than it once was, but new listeners have asked me, why the Higher Side Chats? And so... I think it's because they didn't hear that intro, and that intro says it all. But welcome, dear people, to 2019. I just wanted to step in before we get started on the first show of the year, or second show if you heard the Higher Side Holiday Special for Plus People. But during the holiday season, I got some people asking me for something really wild to end the year. That's what they wanted for Christmas. And while I am just a bit behind that request... In classic stoner fashion, what I do have is something very wild to kick off the new year. And that wild thing is a deep dive beyond the basics of the Mandela effect with a researcher in that community who is plugged in enough to tell us about the real depths of that rabbit hole and where it's been going lately. And the Mandela effect is a difficult one for me because I obviously think the substrate of reality can be accessed and most likely manipulated. I also think there's experimentation going on within this context that could cause strange alterations purposefully or even as an unintended side effect. And when I hear about something that has supposedly been altered, if it's not something I was familiar with, well, if the premise is that it's changed now, you can't really go back and verify anything or experience any alternative. Sure, some of the examples people cite could be explained away with Occam's razor rationalities, but it is getting to a point where people are cataloging too many abnormalities to be ignored, and if there is something to the prospect of time travel or cosmic shifts in consciousness or everyone's favorite particle accelerator, at some point, you would expect to see some indications of some of that. And maybe that point is now. Send in that smoky signal from post-singularity San Diego. Let's do the damn thing. Bring him in, Charlie. It's the Higher Side Chats Podcast, but you can call it THC. Always talking fringe ideas, digging up conspiracies. Stuff they don't want you to know, it's the stuff we want to see. That's life here on the Higher Side. It's the place for me. It's my favorite show where the guests are great and my mind gets blown the higher side. Love the higher side. Raise your glass and toast to Carl Wood, the host, on the higher side chat show. That's life here on the higher side show. Welcome back to the Higher Side Chats. I'm your humble host, Greg Carlwood, and I'm hearing more and more from people who are of the opinion that reality has felt a bit strange lately. 
And what do I know about how reality is supposed to feel? But when you talk to the synchro mystics, they've seen the symbolism spiral into absurd proportions in the last few years. When you talk to the conspiratorially minded, even they are shocked that we blinked and suddenly all the 5G surveillance state smartphone obsessed endgames one would expect seem to be in play. And even when you talk to regular folks just trying to rationalize our reality show president in this era people have been calling post-truth, they are struggling. And then to top it all off, we have the Mandela Effect. Sure, I can accept that even though I remember Berenstein instead of Berenstain, maybe it's just my hazy smoke-filled memory. But the list of odd examples people have compiled has been growing more each day, and when you run into one that resonates with you, it's a pretty unsettling thing. And the Mandela Effect experiencers have grown into a full-on community, or movement, or maybe even a religion. With its own growing language and terminology, its own subcategories, conferences, and even support groups. Because it's not just tweaks to famous lines in pop culture, but important elements of history, changing geography, and in some cases individuals wake up to missing friends or family members that no one around them remembers existing at all. Are the timelines changing? Has the singularity been reached while we were staring into these digital scrying mirrors we carry around? Or did some underground particle accelerator break the big machine? In the era of AI, transhumanism, and CERN experiments, can we ever really be sure reality hasn't been broken somewhere behind the scenes? And what is reality anyway? A simulation? A dream? An archon-controlled prison planet on a perpetual treadmill of death and rebirth? It is hard to say, but today's semi-anonymous guest made a big splash on his YouTube channel SMQAI when he boldly proclaimed that his explanation for the strangeness lately is that we all died in 2012 in a mass extinction event. And as our consciousness deals with the shock, we're slowly watching reality unravel. An intriguing idea we're going to unpack today, so park your ass, pack your glass, and let's get into it. Mr. Mandela Effect of the Afterlife, SMQ, my good man, welcome to the higher side. Oh, that was wonderful, and I have to say, I've always kind of thought about what you would say if I was ever to be on the show, so <laughs> oh, you did not disappoint. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate that. Uh, you got it. <laughs> I mean, I'm just trying to pack all this epic stuff into a few sentences that are attention grabbing and i mean how can they not be this is some wild stuff man you're working with some interesting premises and you talk about so much on your youtube channel that is of interest to me new chronology cymatics the cycle model of time rather than linear time transhumanism the singularity it's all juicy and fun stuff but i gotta kick this off with the most unique element of your worldview we all died in 2012. How did this notion arise? Okay, so how everything sort of happened was if you were to take a sort of linear time construct way about it, and that's sort of an inside joke, but what happened was I discovered the Mandela effect on YouTube. And whenever I discovered the Mandela effect, I think I pretty much found it like everyone else did. It was sort of on a lot of the larger channels a lot of the more poppy kind of channels. And it was sort of the kind of surface ME things that generally most people at the first stage, they'll find, you know, life was like a box of chocolates, Bernstein versus Bernstein, the standard fare kind of thing. And then as I started to really think about the Mandela effect, I was very much familiar with conspiracy culture anyway. 
But the Mandela effect, for some reason, it really resonated with me. And then I started to listen to disparate other videos that were probably a level deeper about the Mandela effect. I started to hear 4chan strands talking about reality being kind of a matrix, talking about reality itself being uploaded to servers, and all kinds of really out there ideas about what happened. But what really spooked me out was a video about the Lindbergh baby. And I couldn't actually remember, did they or did they not find the Lindbergh baby? And this was early on. I would say that for me, it was sometime around September, October 2016, when it really started to hit me. And one of the conclusions that the person on the video came to was that the reason why we're not remembering whether or not the Lindbergh baby was found or wasn't found was that we're already all in the afterlife. And that really shook me up quite a bit. It came together at a perfect time in my life because I had recently had a string of deaths in my family. So I started thinking about life and the afterlife and the meaning of life and all of these really deep philosophical things that you do from time to time when things change all around you all of a sudden. And then I remembered Terrence McKenna and his Time Wave Zero in 2012 and how it ended in 2012. And then I remembered everything that was building up towards that 2012 thing, right? And the whole zeitgeist idea, you know, the singularity. And I just started to think about the Mandela effect. And I was sort of doing this thought exercise, you know, sort of on the fly, off the cuff. What if the Mandela effect itself is the first sort of symptoms of reality itself breaking down? Because at the time, what was very popular with the Mandela effect was it was CERN, CERN, CERN. They had turned on their particle smasher and somehow we all got sucked into some sort of black hole or there's a million other subsets of what happened in terms of the CERN idea or the CERN world of the Mandela effect. And it's almost limitless, the ideas of what CERN did to us. But I went into another different direction altogether. And I started thinking about the idea of what if there was a mass extinction event and the one video about the Lindbergh baby, he wasn't very specific. But I started to think about trauma because when I was 17, I was in a terrible car accident and I had a near-death experience. I was under for about two weeks and I don't remember really the accident. And I only remember bits and pieces during the accident as it was happening until I went to the operating room. And then I don't remember anything after that. So it was a very traumatic event for me. And I started to think about what if, you know, that's, you've got the macro and then, you know, you've got the micro. And I remember how I reacted, uh, me as an individual, to a traumatic event like that. And it took, a, I'd say, a good year for me to really get back on my feet mentally after something like that. And I started just to play around with that idea, a mass traumatic event. And at the time, there was such a um, beating around 2012. It was almost like, it was in the air and, you know, everyone used that word at the time, the zeitgeist, you know, that was the thing at the time. It was such a hip thing that everybody was saying. But also, too, it felt a lot like the 2000 thing, you know, the Y2K thing. It was just everywhere. It was in the air. You could feel it. It was electrical. So I decided to put the two together 
And at the time, I had a YouTube video with really nothing on it. So by my second video, I started to form that idea. And the way that I put it was, what if instead of CERN for the Mandela Effect, there was a mass extinction event during 2012. And as we try to cope with the, you know, collectively we're coping with the trauma, what we're all doing is sort of playing out our lives in a way that we think it should have played out. And I said, in terms of the extinction event itself, imagine it being like a rock hitting a calm body of water. And those echoes is what I called them, how they kind of wave out away from that trauma event of the rock hitting the calm body of water. And I said, those echoes, they get more and more faint. And as they do, they dissolve into a silence. But if we are those ripples, we're going to dissolve into probably more chaos, right? And that would be the breaking down of those things. And the Mandela effect is a perfect example of the breakdown of those kinds of things. Because ultimately what we're talking about is something very profound that I think a lot of people miss that are sort of on the pop level, um, sort of clickbait level of the Mandela Effect. What we're really talking about is what we've assumed about the linear construct of time, that there's a past, there's a present, and there's the future. And the only thing that's supreme is the present. The present will determine what's in the future. And the past, the past is now completely muzzled. And it's sort of frozen. And it cannot be moved. Now, what we're talking about with the Mandela Effect is something incredibly profound. That the past is not at rest. The past indeed is changing. And what if this is the beginning of the past coming alive? Now, certainly something had to have happened or something would have had to have changed. And at that time, I hadn't gotten that far with it, really. By that point, I was still going with the 2012 thing, and I was really trying to understand life and death and what it all means. And that's where I started my We Died in 2012 series. And because of the We Died in 2012 series, my second video... It was crazy. I got to tell you, it blew up overnight. It was very strange. And I think I did the video that afternoon. And by the next day, I had maybe four or 5,000 views. And you've got to keep in mind, at the time, my channel was just maybe a dozen, two dozen followers, if that. And it was mostly people, my fellow cohorts, MEs on YouTube. And I don't know how it caught on or what happened, but eventually over the coming weeks and months, it ended up getting, you know, I think we're running at 162,000 views. And to this day, I'm only a channel on YouTube. I think I'm just breaking 3,700 subs. So to have like 100,000 views, it was out of control. I ended up having to turn off my notifications on my phone because it was blowing up so bad on my phone. So obviously, a lot of people had an opinion about this, and it was disturbing a lot of people. And I realized that you can just put an idea out about life and death and something very basic, and it can really shake people up. 
you can really do a number on someone just by posing an idea. And the way in which I posed the idea, because you got to understand at the time when I started the We Died in 2012 series, I didn't expect an audience like that and a diverse audience like that, meaning it was all over the world and all different kinds of people. And to this day, I still don't understand what happened. My biggest day, I think I had like five or 10,000 views in one day. And by that point, I may have had four or 500 subs at the time. So it was very disproportionate to exactly what I was. <laughs> well, I know a lot of people did send it to me, and that's obviously how I heard about it and why you're here. And it is a really compelling idea. Also, I wanted to say that the Lindbergh baby, for people who are unfamiliar, Charles Lindbergh, his son was kidnapped from his home in the 30s. And that might be one of these things that has two answers or a story that people remember versus a different thing written down in the history books. But I wanted to get deeper into the Mandela effect for that reason, because I know your typical focus is not laying out examples of the Mandela effect, but just so we can make the complete case. And like I said in the intro, they might not all affect every person listening, but when you're hit with one that you were sure was X, but reality is saying Y, it is a trippy experience. So maybe you can tell us about some of the big ones. I wrote a few down that are obviously the first go-tos. One is in Star Wars, no, I am your father, rather than Luke, I am your father. And that to me is one that you can always chalk up to parody. Like that line has been used so many times without Luke for context. People don't necessarily know it's being referenced. So that's a weird one. But I remember Sex in the City. They say it's Sex and the City is the name of the show. I remember Life is Like a Box of Chocolates from Forrest Gump. The internet will tell you life was like a box of chocolates. I remember Interview with a Vampire. I had the DVD. But people say it's Interview with a Vampire or Interview with the Vampire. And I wish I had that DVD for reference at this point. But another one I think is pretty interesting is Mirror, Mirror on the Wall. Apparently, if you go back and watch it, it's Magic Mirror on the Wall. So there are all these weird ones. But what were some of the ones that got you? Or what are some more that you find to be pretty convincing? One of the ones that I always use, and I use it for a couple of reasons. And I actually used it this last week. What you need to do is find someone that you respect that is probably in their late 40s onward and someone who watched Johnny Carson. And it's perfect. What you do is you say, do you remember Ed McMahon? And most of the time, because back then there were only usually three channels and maybe two or three local channels that everyone had. So there's a good chance that they remember who Ed McMahon was. And what you do is you say, do you remember anything else he did besides the Johnny Carson show? And they'll obviously bring up the talent show he did, and that's fine. But no matter what, I have yet to find someone who doesn't bring this up. They'll bring up Publishers Clearinghouse. And I'll ask them without leading them whatsoever, because they have no idea what I'm about to let them know about. You know, okay, Publishers Clearinghouse, that's great. Can you specifically tell me about what he did with Publishers Clearinghouse? And they, to the person, and I understand this is just myself and my own kind of poll, but 
to the person. They go, well, they would arrive in this van and they would roll up with this big check and balloons. And it was the publisher's clearinghouse check where you win a million dollars and everybody would jump up and down and they would be excited. Then you tell them, no, that never happened. Then they start to battle with you. Yes, it did. And then finally you get to the point where you have to just Google it and wiki it. And you've got to see the looks. It's anywhere from horror to they still don't believe it to they don't believe it never happened. And then the excuse that's given from Wiki to Google that we've all misremembered. And this ME makes it so profound is it's twofold. One, in order for this ME to not be true and for us to be misremembering, you have to have made this up in your head on your own and carried it with you until the internet age was created. Okay? You had to all remember it the same exact way. And then you have to all misremember it the same exact way. And then whenever you find out that it never happened, you see, you have to still stick with that belief inside your own personal head. Because not one person that I talk to that remembers, they don't remember him bringing up a pony or a cannonball with like glitter. Every detail they remember is the check, the balloons, the excitement, the jumping up and down. They drive up in a van. It's Publisher's Clearinghouse. There's a couple people there who are wearing suits. There's usually a couple jumping up and down. They're very excited. So it's always the same thing. And science, what they're saying about the Mandela effect and why this particular one is so powerful is that indeed, simultaneously, everyone created this in their mind and they held it for decades since the 80s. <laughs> well, so I remember what you're talking about. At least I think I do. But if you Google it, what does it say is the reality? They said that it's a common misnomer that he worked for a Publishers Clearinghouse and that Ed McMahon actually worked for a competitor. And that competitor indeed had its own campaign and that everyone is remembering it incorrectly. But the big thing about the Publishers Clearinghouse thing is they're saying that the commercials and all those checks and all of those things, that never happened. Well, that is interesting. I guess a part of me is like, isn't it more likely that maybe there was a copycat company that I just wasn't aware of? I was pretty young, though, for this particular example. But yeah, I've, I've listened to you do some exploration of some World War II stuff. And of course, I'm not a history buff either. But to think that history is being tweaked or slowly retroactively changed to make a different outcome for the war and thus reality now... I think there are some really interesting ideas in that with all the under-the-radar tech at the time and the survival of a lot of the Nazi apparatus. I could certainly entertain that people now who might have discovered some weird timeline manipulation technology would go back and work towards making alterations if it were possible. And maybe we're looking at some early test cases, the CIA with MKUltra they would just test whatever they could do, and maybe potentially someone messing with the timelines would think, here are some mundane examples we could mess with without a serious butterfly effect that destroys everything. Potentially, that could be why some of the examples seem mundane. 
No, I totally agree with that. I totally believe the first part of the Mandela effect was a beta test. And it was, we're going to change a few lines. And the Ed McMahon thing was the closest thing that came to something more sketchy, more profound, because why I like to bring that up about publishers' clearinghouses, it usually takes someone who's a bit older to remember it. So that way, it's someone of authority. This isn't some friend of yours, and they're trying to remember a wild night out. This happened for over a decade, the publisher's clearinghouse thing. And this also happened to a generation of people that was pretty no-nonsense in terms of their memories with entertainment, because unlike our generation, where it's unlimited, they had a very limited scope in terms of their entertainment. So they very much remember those big cultural moments. And Agnick Man showing up with that check it was a very big cultural moment, and that didn't happen, so they had to have dreamed that up. But I think that was a great beta test. I think Mirror Mirror on the Wall, Life is Like a Box of Chocolates, Sally Fields, You Like Me, You Really, Really Like Me, and they were all very much Hollywood-based changes. So it's very interesting you brought that up. I, too, believe that that was sort of a beta test. Now, what we started getting into later on, which is a bit more disturbing, was that some of the facts, because I started to cultivate kind of a crew on Twitter, and we all started to talk about different kinds of ideas and philosophies and research. And one of the better researchers that I work with alongside Chick is Agent Asian Smith, and he's from Canada. And what he does is he goes out and he can find the most arcane references in terms of historical facts. And what he unearthed was the fact that things were changing slightly, slight tweaks in World War II, but slight tweaks that mattered. For instance, the common knowledge at the time was that the only attack that had happened before 9-11 on American soil was Pearl Harbor. Right. And now we've come to find out that Indeed, the Axis powers, led by the Japanese on the West Coast, they did attack Oregon, they've attacked California, they've attacked Washington State, they've now held territory in some of the islands in Alaska. There is this thing that's formed called Tornado Alley off of the outer banks of North Carolina that killed over 5,000 civilians because of Germans attacking commercial vessels off of the East Coast. And as we kept looking further and further into it, these things would crop up more and more and more and more. And there would always be just a subtle change or a subtle tweak. And then we found out about the Japanese balloons. And it started out, whenever we found this bit of data, that they took these nine balloons and through the jet stream, they armed the balloons with devices that would explode. And the idea was to use the jet stream to get those devices into either Canada or the more northern parts of America, anywhere up north in America. And what they wanted to do was set the forests on fire in order to do damage to the interior of the country. And what really bothered us all, and there's no way you can prove any of this, what we experienced, that next week it had jumped from nine to 39,000 balloons. I think they're called Fogu balloons. Weird. But you can just look up Japanese balloons, World War II, incendiary devices, and it'll show you. And it'll even show you the schematics. 
And we just got this rush of people who were either their uncle or themselves or their father or their grandfather or whomever that was in World War II. They remembered none of this. Right. And these were people that were, they were on the West Coast. They were on the East Coast. They were in North Africa. They were in Europe. They were all over the place. And nobody remembers that there was a shelling inside Washington State. And I believe the longest shelling was somewhere near Santa Barbara. And I believe that lasted for over 12 hours where the Japanese shelled just off the coast of California. Huh. Yeah, well, that is sort of weird. I know World War II is very complex, and there's probably a lot of threads that just weren't highlighted in my high school history class. But still, I don't think I've ever heard about the three West Coast states all being shelled by the Japanese. It was always just Pearl Harbor and Hawaii, like you said. I don't remember anything on the mainland, but I'm sure you've talked to people more knowledgeable than me. What do they have to say about this? Yeah, and that's the point. When we started to do our show and uncover these things, we were saying, look, if you're a professional historian, you're a professor, whatever it may be, we understand you may have known these kinds of things. But one of the more insidious things about the Mandela effect and what makes it so hard, it's sort of like trying to hold light. The problem is that the idea behind the Mandela effect is that there's either Mandela effect shifts in which there are shifts to reality and you have shifted to a new version of reality, or that was always the case. And if you've made it, we call them shifts. And if you're an ME and you've made a shift, you were part of this one version of reality, and now you've shifted to this other version of reality. And because we're such a small population, I wouldn't go as far as to say people who don't notice are NPCs. I would prefer to think that what they are is everyone is an ME, you just haven't noticed yet. You haven't had that moment yet because oftentimes people who get as deep as we do, it's almost a spiritual experience when you come to realize that reality is not the way in which it was presented to you. And oftentimes I talk about this chain of trust and I often talk about people like Anatoly Fominko. If you're not familiar with Fominko's work, he goes back and one of his bigger ideas is that there's about a thousand years or so of history that's really not accounted for in Western civilization. And the idea, if you want to be conspiracy minded, is that this thousand years was either created in order for there to be a Western mythology built, or it was moved around and it was altered in some way. And in order for the current technology and the current history that we have to make sense, that's how that this was made. And oftentimes, I started to think about, and I was reading Faminka's work at the time that I became an ME. I thought, wow, what if Faminka, his frustration, because he was a mathematician in Moscow with the Moscow Academy of Sciences, his frustration was that everything he would dive into in history would just dissolve right in front of him. No matter what tools he used, no matter how far he went, and he would go to right at the source of whatever he was looking through, he couldn't really prove and it would seem to dissolve in front of him. The book, you can tell he's in a constant state of frustration. And I thought, wow, what if, like we're doing with World War II, when you really look into something, even something that fresh, it sort of dissolves. 
and these facts suddenly begin to move and change on you. And there can always be someone that can say, no, we always knew that, but they're in the minority just like we are and saying, no, I don't think that happened. And all we have is the credentials of that person going on saying, no, it did happen because I am a history professor and I specialize in this part of history. So it becomes this battle of wills. It becomes this battle of who are you going to believe? And it goes deeper then. You start to understand the true insidious nature of the Mandela effect. And that is the Mandela effect in a lot of ways is like the double slit experiment. And if you look too deeply into reality, it does react to being observed. Reality at the quantum level reacts to being observed. And so does history. It reacts in the same way. And that's sort of what I've come to believe. I always joke around that our Mandela Effect channel may not, not be the biggest, but we're the deep end of the pool in terms of trying to pull together these ideas. Because we started to pull in things like Abrahamic religions and understanding what is this concept then that we have of time? What is this thing of time? What benefits does it have for us now? What does it do for us? We know that time, for the most part, is a way in order to have some kind of economic coherency to something. We also know that time, particularly the future, is used oftentimes as a behavior modifier. In order for you to fear the ramifications of your actions, there has to be this illusion of the future that you will never get to. And I'll have to confess right now, just full disclosure, I practice the power now from Eckhart Tolle, so I don't really put a lot of stock in the future, and that was well before I became an Emmy anyway. So I don't really let that be a barometer to my beliefs or anything, because for people that don't believe in the future, and I always say, no one will ever get to the future. No one has ever been to the future. You will never go to the future. And then people always say, well, I'll see you tomorrow. Then they see me tomorrow and they go, see, we're here. And I'm like, no, you're still in the right. present. I think it's a compelling idea. I've heard people express things similarly to all of your worries generally come from obsessing over the past or worrying about the future. But if you concentrate on the moment, you're almost always fine. So yeah, I think the power now is a great way to be. I mean, I'm all for it. I wanted to step back to the idea of multiple timelines because you mentioned that. And I've heard terms like new earther and old earthers. And I've also heard people talking about the Orion arm versus the Sagittarius arm of the galaxy. And I guess I put it together is the suggestion that we have moved within the Milky Way. Is that one of these things? And people are thinking that based on your timeline, you could actually look and see where we're supposed to be in the Milky Way and identify where you are in this tangled web of multiple timelines? Well, what ha happened earlier on in the Mandela effect was there was the Sagittarius versus Orion. There's a pretty famous Carl Sagan, I think it was, who was talking about what he talks about, which is space. And in it, he notes that we are in the Sagittarius arm, and we call that residue, that we were in the Sagittarius arm, and that now we look like we're in the Orion spur. But it's been in the last week or two, that too is changing now. And that is no longer something, it's getting fuzzy. And 
you got to understand the Mandela effect is not static. It moves. It keeps moving. And things about the Mandela effect keep moving. And now if you go to look it up, where we are in the Milky Way, it's starting to merge the language of the Sagittarius arm and the Orion spur. So eventually, old earthers versus new earthers, I call myself an orphan of Sagittarius because at the time, that was very plain in 2016, and that is becoming more and more muddy now. But yes, there was exactly what you said, is there was that separation. And in terms of old earthers versus new earthers, there was this idea of individual shifts, and the concept was still being developed. So, you know, I used to always say, not my planet, as a way of kind of conveying to everybody on Twitter that I considered myself, I mean, I'm an old earther, I'm from the original earth. But now that it seems like the ideas everyone is talking about is that it wasn't a one-time event, that now this thing is ongoing. So it's kind of moving a bit away from that. But to those that have been into ME for a while, you still remember that old kind of language that we used at the time. But now, you know, we seem to almost shift. It got to where it was monthly, then weekly. Now people, depending on the Schumann resonance and some other things, they're trying to tie down ways in which to, you know, markers, indicators to show that there is a shift either coming up or we're in the middle of an ME shift or we're just post an ME shift and things like the human resonance and other indicators. Right. Can you explain that a little bit? The human resonance project? I think we've talked about it on the air before, but it's interesting data in correlation with the Mandela effect. Yeah, sure. It's just basically the human resonance is and there's, I think, entire Twitter feeds and maybe even more, I'm subbed to a couple of them, where it shows spikes in the resonance in the frequency of the earth, basically. They call it the heartbeat of the earth. And it's the vibrational frequency of the earth changes and it moves around and it changes. It's sort of like a speeding up of a heartbeat versus a slowing of a heartbeat. And there used to be an acceptable range of the Schumann resonance that was out there before. And now we have these spikes well above that acceptable band that used to be out there. Some people have noticed that when those spikes happen, people have ringing in the ears. They have dual memories of past events. They have headaches. We notice that when there's been changes in the anatomy, Mandela effect changes in the anatomy. We all can come together and talk about certain parts of your body hurting or waking up in pain, particularly the skull, your mouth, your sinuses, and there'll be these kinds of changes. And I don't know who made that correlation because I'd love to give them the credit, but someone made that correlation to the Schumann resonance that it was pretty high. And I don't know what the number is, but it's fairly high. So that's pretty much how all that's put together. Hmm. It is really interesting, man. And another component I definitely wanted to try to fit into this first hour here is technology changes. I've heard you talk about this idea that we're seeing some things appear earlier in the timeline than they're supposed to exist, like photography, for example. Can you tell us about what you're seeing there? Sure. Yeah. It's another one of those things. And what I love about the ME community is some people focus on just one thing. And there's a YouTuber out there, Lone Eagle. He mostly, not specifically, but he mostly does technology before its time. And now we're talking about pictures taken 
as early as the early 1800s now, the early 19th century. And I mean like really? 1817 now, we've gotten back to. As well as other technologies. I mean, there's just countless that's out there. And there's weird technologies that we never, at least I'd never heard of. There was this technology that used to exist. It was sort of like a jukebox, but you could watch videos. And you would watch videos from like crooners in the 50s. And there would be videos. I thought videos came about the earliest, maybe was around the 60s. And I don't know if it was used for promotional purposes or what it was, but I didn't know that there was a whole subset of the entertainment industry that dealt with videos going as far back as swing music. And you could put the quarter in like a jukebox, only you could sit there and watch a video. And it's very odd and it's very strange. You know, I don't know the name of the device. There's a couple of videos out there that talk about this thing. But specifically, I think it's these boots were made for a walk-in. And the video, I, who was that by? Wasn't that Sinatra, Nancy or something? I know the song, but not the artist. Well, specifically her video, it was incredibly risque. And it was very odd to see that. And there's other videos too, going back as early as the early 40s. And they're incredibly risque for what you would think, you know, at least, I'm sorry, somebody who's in the 21st century, I had an idea about the 30s and the 40s, and this technology, a lot of it in color in the 30s and the 40s, a lot of it was at penny arcades or it would be boardwalk atmospheres. Nickelodeons. Exactly. And it's very strange and it's odd and strange technology that I didn't know existed. And then obviously there's the movement of when the light bulb was created, who created flight first. Now it's not the Wright brothers. Really? Yeah, it's not the Wright brothers now. For a while I knew that there was a battle between Ohio and North Carolina because the Wright brothers were from Ohio and they did their work in North Carolina. But now it's a battle of the Wright brothers weren't even the first in flight which is the license plate saying for North Carolina. And I don't think that's the case anymore. And these facts, they get more, it's like a Flamingo thing. The more you look into it, the more slippery it gets. The same thing with the car, the automobile. Now we're reach, reaching well into the 19th century with the automobile. And no, I don't mean the steam engine automobile, which goes back to like the 18th century, because a lot of people jumped on me for that. So I can just go ahead and extinguish that fire right now. I'm talking about the automobile like we know it today, the modern engine that uses gasoline, not steam. So a lot of strange things you can look into and you'll be surprised. Yeah, you know, I've seen YouTube videos of old black and white footage where you'll see someone on what looks like a smartphone or somebody with earbuds back in like the 1930s. Maybe they're time jumpers or maybe some Bermuda Triangle-like effect popped them into some other time and space. But there are interesting examples out there, and it might not be exactly the same thing. But I guess I would also ask, what are your thoughts on just generally where technology comes from? I've had a lot of great guests talk about the connection between the occult, communications with some of their beings, and technological inventions, Ben Franklin, Tesla, Jack Parsons. The connection seems pretty strong there, and maybe that's related to where technology seems to come from or where it goes. Yeah, it's great that you bring up Parsons. I bring up Parsons all the time. If you 
were to look at technology in a linear time construct, technology is something that a lot of people have to invest a lot of time in. And then what you have to do is you have to do a lot of work in that if you believe in a linear time construct. But if you remove that, which is essentially a fossil from the Abrahamic religions, and you were to step back from that for a minute, ultimately what you can think about technology is you can think about what you want about technology. And rather than if you've got some sort of mastery that I don't understand yet of the present and then the past, you can inject that idea earlier in the timeline if you're willing to upset some people like me noticing that that didn't exist before. And that way you can get a jump start on the human power that it's going to take to birth that technology. And particularly if you think about technology as something that is absolutely the wall between technology and fiction is actually a fiction. Parsons is the perfect example. At the time, there were no rocket ships. It was completely science fiction. He literally, through sigils and all kinds of other things, he took from the realm of the muse, an ancient realm, an idea that he manifested, and he went through different steps. And he was able to pull from that realm into this realm and create and change our environment forever. Now, that's what scientists do. Now, the magic trick that's been done on the public is we believe the same exact thing, but you believe, or not you personally, but a person that believes the mainstream way how something is created or developed, it's the same thing, only it's done through a lot of hard work and no one questions where the seed of that idea came from and then the execution of that idea came from and what it takes the continual firing and the continual instruction manual that it will take for you to first get to the point where you have all of those elements together. Now, that fits perfectly in a linear time construct just fine, no big deal. You got somebody who wants Solid rocket fuel, so rockets can leave the atmosphere. Well, you take the Jack Parsons conventional wisdom about it, right? No big deal. Okay, so he did a lot of work. He did a lot of math, and he and his crew, they essentially got together, and through a lot of luck and a lot of hope, they pulled it off. Or another way to look at it is the technology had already existed. He agreed that's what he wanted to do, and the sacrifice and the compromise that he made from taking, let's say, like something you would see in ancient times is that he had to make a change from, you know, a chariot that's on fire to a rocket ship. And that's the compromise that was made in order for the sensibilities to not be shocked of modern people. Because if he were to take the exact set of instructions to create a chariot of fire, and he were to try to apply that to 1930 society, it would freak everybody out. Because it looks like a mural you would see somewhere in some ancient Southern European former Roman territory. So what he had to do is make a compromise that would adhere to modern sensibilities, which is essentially the same thing. And that's where 
fiction, it becomes something that's much more than what people give it credit for. Fiction helps people visualize first the coming technology that's going to come into being that has already existed from a long time ago. And it's just a rebirthing of old technologies. So you need fiction in order for people who can't visualize these kinds of things, a way for them to visualize them in a contemporary setting. Because essentially what he invented with the solid rocket fuel and the rockets being able to do what they did, you can go find that on any mural anywhere else. And there's a myriad of ancient texts that talk about things like that. Right, like the text of India and stuff. I like the idea. I've had guests talk about the subtext of the Middle East being that it's not about oil we want, that it's about digging up old documents that describe technologies. It's about raiding the museums for artifacts. And that a lot of what the elite's secret agenda is, is digging up old technology. So I like the concept in general, and it is kind of curious when you see all these inventors also dabbling in the occult, or maybe we should reverse that, and they're dabbling in inventions, and they're just occultists. But what do you think's the mechanism there, that they're communicating with some deity or some spirit outside of time and space that then gives them old technology in some new modern container? I think the first thing that has to happen is, like I said, you first have to create a fiction. Long before we had our computers, you had Dick Tracy and he would speak to his phone or I guess his communication device on where a watch is, right? The first thing that has to happen is very simple and it's very easy. You first have to take and you have to make it contemporary so people can accept what this magic is in a contemporary setting so it doesn't scare everyone. Then what you do, like you said, and I totally believe that's exactly what we're fighting for in the Middle East, is you go look for that ancient technology. And the only magic that has to happen, besides you know whatever rituals or whatever it is that some people may claim this, that, and the other, but what has to happen is to find that technology and go, okay, we have the instructions now from ancient Sumeria or whatever it may be of this flying vehicle that looks like a disc or whatever it may be. The hardest thing to do is to put that in a contemporary setting into people's minds. Once they do that, then what we can do is take these instructions. You know, you hear this very often. How about this? You hear this very often that sigils look exactly like what electronic engineers deal with. Whenever you look at any kind of specs, electronic specs, and you compare them to sigils, they look a lot alike. Now, if you were to bring up sigils, and you were to say, okay, make this real, and then give it an electrical charge, charge the sigil, okay, and you were to say that to a contemporary scientist, they'd call you crazy. But if you were to encapsulate that in contemporary language, and call it a motherboard, and then call it circuits, and build an empire language around this thing, then they're going to take what they call instructions, which is really just a sigil, and they're going to charge it. And it's going to do those things. So really, it's just a matter of making that leap and first building that up. So you can almost see what technology is going to come down the road. That Dick Tracy example I talk about all the time, we now have that with Samsung and Apple. We have phones that we talk to. We have that technology and it does all kinds of things, just like in Dick Tracy. 
and just about anything we have other than being beamed up we have almost all of it now and it's ongoing our existence so who knows yeah man who knows it is pretty wild i have heard you talk about something that kind of stuck in my mind in terms of you know we mentioned seeding technologies and that but also the prospect of pulling them out of a timeline of course i don't think the moon landing happened the way we're told and i think it's pretty obvious looking back at the trajectory of technology that it wouldn't have been done then but you know people still believe it if you ask nasa they'll say they lost the data from the whole saga of missions and they also no longer have the technology to do it strange curious thing for them to say and i heard you mention that possibly someone from a superposition or outside of time and space can extract technology out of our timeline yeah absolutely if you look through the lens of the mandela effect with a lot of traditional things you start to see things very differently and perhaps we did something abusive because if you don't look at time as something that's linear then anything is possible in terms of technology and technology can be given or taken away and if you no longer subscribe to a linear concept of time that's how other civilizations too lose their technology it's taken away from them and for whatever reason i don't know but that technology has now been taken away from us we can't go back to the moon and we have nasa scientists literally saying that and we can get into the whole superposition thing but if you have beings or you have civilizations or you have whatever it may be that is in a superposition that can move in time and can take away or give technology at a given point or move technology around at a given point then certainly you have a whole new understanding of why we can no longer get to the moon it was a punishment you could see it that way or you could see it as it was strategic it was needed for something else i don't know but certainly your mind starts to open up to all kinds of unlimited possibilities particularly whenever you take the idea of all of technology comes from this place outside of the disk i call it because i see life as cyclical you know it doesn't really move forward it doesn't really move backwards but the way in which we experience it is the seasons are a great metaphor for that is it's cyclical it comes back and it goes over and over and over and over again it's like a plate and there can be a body outside of that now whether that's a person or it's a series of people or another civilization it can give and take away technologies it can give and take away memories and timelines and things like that and it all starts with the mandela effect and it all starts with ed mcmahon and those things and when you start looking at those things those kinds of possibilities become less and less absurd because if you were to just splash someone cold in the face with this and there's not weeks and weeks of research and weeks and weeks of understanding of it it sounds really absurd but here's one thing i'll tell you you know what really sounds absurd is that andy warhol is on the moon now that's absurd what do you mean by that Andy Warhol is on the moon. There's a moon museum right now on the moon. At least I hope a Mandela effect has not taken it away by the time this airs. But there's a moon museum. And what they did at the time was they asked Andy Warhol and a lot of other artists at the time to write on essentially this small little tablet. 
and they all wrote a little doodle or sigil or whatever you want to call it on a tablet. And the history behind it is these rebel NASA engineers, they hid it from the people in charge and it went up on one of the Apollo missions. And what they did was they set it up and now there's a moon museum with Andy Warhol on the moon, as well as a memorial for the fallen astronauts, including, I believe, a cosmonaut that is on the moon. On the moon. On the moon. That's weird. The only thing I know of to be up there, supposedly, is a flag and maybe some golf balls off in the distance. Well, now there's a museum, and it's on the moon, and it has Andy Warhol. And I always make that joke because the Mandela effect itself, when you really get into it for a long time, and how that came about is my co-host Chick and I, we were joking around about how sometimes you can talk about changes and the synchronicities of them coming up in the Mandela effect are kind of striking sometimes. And it's almost like the Mandela effect's listening to you. And I think she was the one who said, could you imagine if something crazy showed up on the moon or there was a water park or something like that on the moon? And I don't remember exactly how it played out, but sure enough, it was about two weeks later, there was a moon museum. You can Google and wiki it right now. And one thing we'll show that's a hallmark of a Mandela effect is they slap the page together and they put it up really fast. It's a real cheap kind of operation if you read. And you would think something like this they would have made movies out of because it sounds like a real rock and roll thing to do is to take Andy Warhol and put him on the Apollo. It's just so rock and roll, especially in the 60s and the rebellion and all that, and send Andy Warhol to the moon. And there's now a moon museum and let's see if you're cool enough to get there. I mean, you the script writes itself. <laughs> it's strange. It's weird. It is. And it happened after she and I were talking about that, about there should be more attractions on the moon. Maybe that way we could prove if we went to the moon or not, if there was something worth going back for, people would want to go and there'd be more demand. Well, sure enough, now there's a moon museum. So you have a tourist spot to go to now on the moon. <laughs> Maybe your power of manifestation is stronger than you know. And Who knows? <laughs> man, it is really fascinating. And as we start to bring it full circle, it seems like you mentioned you're building out a bit of a network with the Mandela effect. I know you have a few people you regularly talk to and work with. What can you tell us about the Mandela effect research community and those other folks you're working with? Maybe we can give them a plug. And also, you have a podcast, I believe, called The Lizard Ritual, which is a hell of a name. Uh, but tell us about the things you're working on and maybe how to check in on with some of the best researchers that you know of on this stuff. Yeah, definitely. I appreciate that. I do Truth Frequency Radio, if I could give them a plug. They give me an hour on Sundays, The Lizard Ritual, which is really just an extension of my YouTube channel, which is SQ space AI, or you can just do S&Q and look for the Mandela Effect for me. And we do a regular show Saturdays, 2 o'clock Eastern, called The Lost and Found Bin. It's myself and fellow researcher Chick. And sometimes we pull in other researchers like Agent Asian Smith. The three of us, we get together with all kinds of other researchers as well. And we kind of pull our talent together to kind of formulate ideas. And sometimes I do my videos on my own. And with Truth Frequency Radio, there's Gully Ray Valentine, and there's a host of others. Crow777, who's on there, 
So there's a host of other people that are really great and they do their own kinds of research that sometimes cross with the Mandela effect. But the thing I'm learning about the Mandela effect is that indeed, no doubt whatsoever is that its tentacles is crossing into almost everything because so much is changing. So much is becoming so strange. And obviously, you know, Isaac Weishaupt. Yeah. Yeah. He's a great friend of mine. I've had on Paul Frederick, not a researcher, but definitely someone who's absolutely interesting. So it just goes on and on with the different people you run across because with the Mandela effect, you do start to realize as you open up with these ideas, you do meet a diverse crowd of people that are very interesting. And if they're interested in those kinds of ideas, they certainly end up being interesting people. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Wow, man. Well, we really tested the bottom of the rabbit hole for sure. Thanks for taking the time. It has been a lot of fun, quite trippy. Keep exploring the weird world and enjoy the afterlife. <laughs> I appreciate that, Grab, and I appreciate being on the show. Uh, thanks, man. Take care. All right, you too. Oh, sweet baby Jesus, people. Happy New Year. You're all dead. Sorry to inform you. SMQ, bringing the weird. No arguments there. I thought he was a great guest. I really enjoyed this ride. But we are dealing with a couple of things, you know. Number one is largely just a thought experiment, right? I mean, what if Terrence McKenna did find something with time wave zero? What if the Mayan calendar cycle that was being tracked actually was a countdown to some kind of cosmic switch flip? Our minds are receivers for consciousness, they say, and perhaps a sudden energy alteration could have us slowly unraveling rather than realizing we went through a change. I don't know. I give the man points for creativity. And like I said in the interview, anyone can put any idea they want into the arena. One of my favorite parts of the Royal Tannenbaums, actually, is when Owen Wilson's character is describing the book he wrote about alternative history and confronts one of his critical reviewers on a phone call, and he says, Well, everyone knows Custer died at Little Bighorn. What this book presupposes is, maybe he didn't? Let me ask you something. Why would a review make the point of saying someone's not a genius? Do you think I'm especially not a genius? I don't... You didn't even have to think about it, did you? (laughs) I just love that. I mean, but what what are you going to do? We are clearly speculating here a bit. But I did think it rose a lot of interesting points, so kudos for throwing that idea in the arena. And that's one aspect of today. But then I think the Mandela effect is a whole nother beast. And I'm absolutely open to the fact that there's something strange in our neighborhood in regards to this unalignment between reality and memory. Maybe it is just a result of the internet and having this massive archive of information. We really consider the totality of everything. And for the first time, to our knowledge, we're able to weigh the collective everything against the memory of individuals. And also now those individuals are better able to vocalize any differences they may notice. Word gets out with this internet thing. And some of it may speak to the subjectiveness of reality. You know, ask 10 people to describe the same car wreck and you get 10 different explanations, all that stuff. Or take into account that invisible gorilla experiment that they did at Harvard. You know, participants were asked to watch footage of a basketball game and carefully count the number of passes. And so they're watching intently and counting. And then 
The video stops and the researcher asks, hey, did you notice anything strange? Well, in the film that the subjects are watching, they're busy counting passes and they miss the fact that there's a guy in a gorilla suit who walks out in the middle of the court, right in the middle of the screen, and then walks off. Obviously, that's something strange, and it's crazy that we don't notice that if we're focusing on other details. So when an experiment like that is in play, when we know what we know about reality's subjectivity, it's hard to not at least factor that in or keep it in mind when dealing with the themes within the Mandela effect. Now, throw in very real experiments on reality's underlying structure that are happening. Add in this point in the timeline, 2012, that had an incredible amount of focus and attention on it. Throw in McKenna's Time Wave Zero. Add the speculation about time travel. And all these weird examples that stack up, things we talked about today. And it's hard to not wonder if something's going on. I think his points about history being altered beyond pop culture quotes and brand names are pretty interesting. I've yet to be hit with anything in those realms that I'm positive couldn't have happened. You know I chalk it up to my own stoner ignorance in those cases, but overall this was more about talking to someone about the breadth and scope of this Mandela Effect community. It's interesting what people are finding false that they thought was true, and vice versa, and how it's budding into something that will probably always be with us now as a subculture. And when your history and memory don't sync up, you have a place to go where everybody knows your pain. Years. Ted Danson's bar where they discuss the changing timelines. But let's make this more interesting. So we have this Ed McMahon situation that was cited in the show today. Did Ed McMahon hand out big checks for Publishers Clearinghouse? We're told this is false, and he worked for a different company and was never out in the field. Well... Since we recorded this, SMQ has been handed another piece of the puzzle, and when you go into the official public papers of Bill Clinton during his presidency, you know, they got all these archives that you can read through about the president's daily life, generally the mundane stuff, but SMQ made a video where he shows a particular paragraph from these Clinton records from July 28, 2000, and it reads, note, the president spoke at 12.30 p.m. at the Theodore Francis Green State Airport on arrival in Providence, Rhode Island. In his remarks, he referred to Ed McMahon, Publishers Clearinghouse Sweepstakes, and the Prime Minister of Israel. So, SMQ... He thanks Buster1978 on Twitter for the find. I guess I should as well. But it is just one of those things. Maybe Bill Clinton remembers wrong as well. But when you find a Mandela effect that hits you, it often hits you hard. I remember Sex in the City, but I also never watched the show and could have just heard it wrong. feel like I remember Berenstain, but again, the same thing. Do I remember hearing about these shellings on the West Coast in World War II? I definitely do not. But there was a lot going on. Many people don't know about a lot of the smaller threads of World War II, that America had their own detention camps for the Japanese and some German Americans. They converted horse tracks to prisons, basically. The prospect of messing with the World War II timeline, though, is really interesting, considering how huge an effect it would have. We've also seen a lot of fiction on the prospect that World War II went the other way. What if that's manifesting some actual movement of the needle? Who am I to say? I just asked the questions, but big thanks to SMQ. If you like the first hour and the plus show, it gets even weirder. We talked about the geographical changes that the Mandela effect researchers are picking up on. 
Could the Mandela effect be natural? How is this not the afterlife? Archaeological anomalies, changes in nature and the Rainbow Mountains, and no show would be complete without cats with wings. They're out there, people. Google cats with wings. You know, I also really like that bit about the Moon Museum. I looked that up, too. And one of the images is a drawing of a dick, which is kind of funny. And SMQ says, yeah, the Mandela effect has a sense of humor about these things. And it is weird because even with all the moon landing stuff, I had never heard that they took this little thing with artists work on it. They called the Moon Museum. So, again, (laughs) I don't hear about a lot of these weird side stories that. I just don't know if they were in the real memory or not. I don't know which reality I am in. But anyway, Plus People also got to hear a near three-hour holiday special this week as a thank you for collectively keeping the Higher Side ship afloat. I'm always grateful for that. And maybe that's something that makes you want to jump over to the Plus Side. But either way, hope you enjoyed today compelling and confusing whirlwind of weaponized memory effects or something natural or we're all dead. I mean, everybody knows Obama served two terms, but what SMQ is presupposing is maybe he didn't. Anyway, I got to get out of here. Your move, Mandela effectors, memory manipulators, and twisters of the timelines, your fucking move. You know, the plan has always been to hack your brain. MK Ultra's trying to drive you insane. They'll explode your heart if they think that's what it takes. You think I'm answering the phone? Well, I ain't. You gotta keep the curtains drawn, cause you don't want anyone thinking you're at home. Well, you're not. You should tape the mail slot. And baby, if I seem withdrawn, let me say it's cause I just don't wanna go and get whacked. Maybe you should know that the trauma affects you like it does everyone. It's just the game plan, it's what the world's become. They want a pat down and a swap. Don't you see what's going on? Well, now you know you're better keeping on your own cause you can see the masters lie too much oh baby you can only trust yourself and if you think the system's out of touch it is and you can only trust yourself i hope you know the elite aren't your friends they'll suck out everything from you in the end And if for some reason you think I might be wrong I wonder where you got that opinion from You gotta keep the curtains drawn Cause you don't want anyone thinking you're at home Well, you're not, you should tape the mail slot And baby, if I seem withdrawn Let me say it's cause I just don't wanna go and get whacked Maybe you should know that The trauma affects you like it does everyone It's just the game plan, it's what the world's become They want a pat down and a swap Don't you see what's going on? Well now you know You're better keeping on your own Cause you can see the masters lie too much
Out of touch, it is, and you can only trust yourself. 